Good afternoon and welcome to the 146th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will discuss the challenges of small businesses during the pandemic with Greg Bishop, Jabari Jones, and Zachary Cox. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests topics and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 12, 2020, there are 1,078,362 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 7 million 779,251 cases of COVID-19 in the United States, up from 7,643,256 reported Friday. There are now a total of 214,917 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 213,390 reported on Friday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline, Chalice restaurant owner and Redlands mother of three loses battle with coronavirus. By Fielding Buck, this appeared in the Redlands, California Press Enterprise, August 11. Leticia Silverio, and her husband, Jose Luis Salazar, opened Chili's restaurant in Redlands in 2016, where they worked tirelessly at the breakfast hangout for nearly four years, hoping it would fund the future for their three children. But around the 4th of July, the family was hit hard by the novel coronavirus. They all got it, as well as Silverio's parents, Ignacio Silverio Sr. and Victorina Silverio. But Leticia Silverio, known to family and friends as Letty, took care of the others before she was hospitalized with COVID-19 on July 22nd. Nearly two weeks later, on August 2nd, Letty died. She was 40 years old. I think of all our family members, she was probably the most giving, said her younger brother, Ignacio Silverio Jr. She once saved up several paychecks from a job at Taco Bell to buy another brother, Salvador, a pair of Nike Air Jordan shoes. Silverio's parents came to the United States from Mexico in 1988, he said in a phone interview. Leticia was the oldest of five children and spent the rest of her life in Redlands. She went to Lagonia Elementary School and Moore Middle School before graduating from Redlands High School in 1998. She studied accounting at Crafton Hills College, but postponed her education to start her family with Salazar, a cook with Hickory Ranch Steakhouse and Bar in Yucaipa. She went to work at Ace Cash Express and the couple saved for years to open their own restaurant. 
their hope was to give their children the life that my sister was never able to have, said Ignacio Silverio Jr. Their children are Alexander, 17, Heidi, 15, and Adrian, 9, the latter of whom supplied the name of the restaurant, which served American diner classics and Mexican favorites. My nephew, Adrian, couldn't pronounce his dad's name, which is Luis, said Ignacio Silverio Jr. The best way he was able to pronounce it was Chilis. So that's how the restaurant got its name. My sister didn't finish her schooling and accounting, but she figured she had the wits and the tenacity to push forward and figure things out as they came. Despite the hours she put into the restaurant, Leticia loved being outside. She was a big fan of roller coasters and the family enjoyed going to places with thrill rides like Knott's Berry Farm and Six Flags Magic Mountain. She loved getting outdoors, Ignacio Silverio Jr. said. She loved going on hikes, she loved going camping. Camping was her thing. Rheumatoid arthritis created an obstacle to those pastimes about five years ago, her brother said. Now he wonders if it was a factor in her COVID-19 illness. Since the whole family got sick at the same time, they have no way of knowing how they got it, he said. When the family became ill, Ignacio Silverio Jr. was hundreds of miles away in Nashville, Tennessee, where he's an associate pastor at the Madison campus Seventh-day Adventist Church. When his sister was hospitalized and facing intubation, he set aside doctoral studies and came home. July 25th was when I flew out to try to be a support to my family, hoping that my sister would pull through and that we would be laughing and enjoying life right now instead of preparing for her funeral service. He has put together a GoFundMe campaign to help with funeral and hospital costs, as well as giving the children some security with the restaurant, which closed July 4th. It has raised or had raised as of August $35,000. Jose Luis and the children are still recovering from COVID-19, Ignacio said. They lost some weight with the virus. Right now they're regaining their strength. Ignacio Silverio Jr. is spending time with his family as they all try to get over the loss of Letty and remember the good times. She was not one that would complain about pain or make herself mopey. She'd try to do the best with what she had. She lived her life to the fullest as much as she was able. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. I'm really excited to have three great experts on today to talk about small business in the pandemic. Let me introduce them. Greg Bishop is currently the interim executive director of Coro New York. He's tasked with leading a civic leadership organization that believes meaningful change comes from collaboration. People in business and communities, schools and unions, government and nonprofits working together to find creative solutions and strengthen our democracy. Prior to this role, Greg served as the commissioner of the New York City Department of Small Business Services, where he was charged with running a dynamic city agency focused on equity of opportunity that leads to economic self-sufficiency and mobility for New York City's diverse communities. Zachary Cox is a PhD student in the Disaster Science and Management Program at the University of Delaware, where he also works as a research assistant. He holds a Master of Arts in Disaster and Emergency Management from Royal Roads University in Victoria, Canada. Mm. An experienced disaster practitioner, Zach has worked as a recovery management consultant with IBM and volunteered with Red Cross Personal Disaster Assistance Response Team. He's currently conducting dissertation fieldwork to understand how small businesses are engaging in technical continuity, internal reflection, and external adaptation to navigate COVID-19. 
Jabari K. Jones was recognized to lead the West Philadelphia Corridor Collaborative in 2015. Upon assuming leadership, Jones laid out a broad vision for connecting the fragmented hyperlocal business corridors in West Philly into one business community, one ecosystem of support for entrepreneurs. Under Jones, the collaborative has become the largest business association in West Philadelphia, providing hundreds of hours of free business training, developing private public partnerships with major companies like Amtrak, Automatic, and Exelon, and building international trade and business relationships with representatives and companies in the African Union, Scotland, and People's Republic of China. Greg Bishop, Jafari Jones, and Zachary Cox, thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule to come on COVID calls today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Absolutely. It's good to see you all. And I want to remind folks that you can get your questions in on uh, YouTube Live. Just put them in the chat and we'll take those questions. You can also put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at US Disaster. And sometimes people still like to email them and you can do that. Send them to sgk23 at drexel.edu. So I'd like to start the way that I usually do, just finding out where people are and how the pandemic is looking there. So let, Greg, let me start with you on that question. So, so Scott, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm actually calling from uh, New York City. Uh, I, I live in Brooklyn where I, I, I grew up and, and still remain. Um, so New York, it, we're, we're in a very tricky uh, scenario right now. Um, after, uh, as you know, New York City and, and New York State was uh, the hardest hit early on in March and April. Um, you know, as, as the governor said, we climbed the mountain um, and then we uh, saw the other side uh, about June or so. And we've been trending about a 1% um, uh, sort of like uh, infection rate uh, for a long time. But now we're starting to see pockets. Uh, in different areas of the city where, um, you know, some of those rates are as high as 9%. Uh, so now New York City, I think, learning and, and the state learning from other countries, actually, we're deploying a more selective um, uh, lockdown in certain areas. Um, so so we're at that point right now. Um, and of course, we're dealing with all the politics of, you know, uh, what it means to be socially distanced, wearing a mask, uh, we're dealing with the, the trauma of some of the businesses that were just starting to see traffic pick up, having to shut down again. Um, uh, and so we're, we're at, a, I think, a, a, a crucial point uh, for our recovery in terms of how well can we can now contain, um, you know, the resurgence of this virus. Greg, that picture that you painted is, is one that strikes me. We should have been able to say like in April or May, you know, you don't want to have to shut down New York City. You want to be able to have the tools to be Correct. much more strategic in how you do that. Correct. And, and yet people are not used to that. So it's interesting the way you just described it, that it's it's causing a bit of friction because it's not what people in New York had seen in the first sort of wave of the virus. Right. And I'll say, you know, uh, and for those who don't know, you know, I, I was the commissioner of small business services during that time. Um, you know, and I've been in government for 12 years under two administrations. And I, I would tell you that uh, no business is prepared uh, for a disaster like this. Uh, most businesses, you know, they may have business interruption insurance. They may be prepared in terms of financially for a month, uh, you know, four week shutdown or six week shutdown. Uh, but, you know, what we're asking business owners literally, um, and if you think you're, if you're running a event planning business, if you're running a, um, you know, a, 
physical establishment like a gym, uh, you've been shut down for about six months. Um, and then there's no disaster recovery plan that ever envisioned um, having to be closed for that long. So, so we're at this point now where, you know, we cannot afford to shut down the city again. Um, you know, and, and you have been, you've done research and, you know, you know, the SBA has the statistics where it's like 40% of businesses after a normal disaster, which is like a hurricane earthquake, it happens and it's done. And about 40% of businesses fail. Uh, we have seen this disaster go, it's like a never ending. It's like a freight train uh, and it, and the train and the, you know, the front cars have derailed and we've got a mile long car that's just, it's just derailing and derailing and derailing and we can't do anything. So we have to figure out a way uh, to effectively control the virus, uh, but not necessarily use the blunt tool of shutting down. Uh, in March and April, we had no, we were flying blind. We had right. we we didn't have contract tracing. We didn't we didn't know um, you know how long the virus has been there. But now I think we're in a better position where we could be more surgical in terms of the solution to control the virus. Thanks for that update from from New York, Zachary. Let me come to you. Same question: Where you're calling from, and what's it looking like there? So I'm calling uh, from Newark, Delaware, which uh, is a small university. <laughs> it's not Newark, whatever you are up in New Jersey there. Um, but, you know, we we do take, I would say, COVID-19 to be a serious issue around here, right? And I don't know why exactly, um, but it, it, it seems to have, a, have an immediacy and an importance. So anytime you go out to the grocery yeah. store, you see everybody covered uh, in a mask and, and most of them, mm -hmm. you know, are covering their nose as well. Um, if you need a test, you can go and you go online, maybe the next day, maybe the day after you can get, uh, get one of those drive through ones, you swab your mouth and then two or three days later, um, you get your results. So I think it's being taken, being taken very seriously here. And I think we have a fairly good infrastructure to, to understand it at least and, and, and live with it. And what about the situation on the campus? Or have they reopened at all or are they completely remote? So that's, you know, the universities, I don't know how Drexel was, but they, they were really, that was, a, that was a tough, tough hand. As far as I understand, most classes uh, are online unless you really need to be there, right? The example always given is, uh, you know, if you're a nurse, you really need to learn how to stick the needle uh, to draw blood. And so those classes uh, are in person, but I think, and, you know, somebody from the university will, I have to forgive me. I think it was 1,400 people in the residence halls when re regularly we get like seven or 8,000. So it's quite a bit less, more empty. Well, thank you for giving us that, that update. And you happen to be doing your dissertation in the middle of this <laughs> disaster. The Disaster Research Center, for people who are not familiar, is one of the places in the United States that pioneered sort of immediate post-disaster social science research and usually those disaster events are over before the disaster team, the research team arrives. You were having the uncanny experience, um, as Greg used the analogy, you know, the, the front of the freight train is off the rails, but the back is not yet. And you're somewhere in the middle documenting all this, Zach. What a strange experience. You know, it, it really is. When I came here, I thought, you know, I would do some quick response research. Maybe I'd, I'd go out after an earthquake or a flood. Um, I didn't expect to be, you know, sitting in my my guest room making Zoom calls, trying to understand, you know, 
and 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 hearing just you know I, I guess I didn't know what to expect when I went out to a, a hurricane or a any other type of hazard, but just terrible stories about how COVID-19 has decimated people's lives. And, you know, small business owners, they, they get into the small business world because they have a goal and they have a, a dream and a passion. And, you know, sitting in my guest room, listening to them and, and hearing these stories and, and it's just uh, not what I expected. And well, you know, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to hear more about what what your findings are. Thank you for for bringing us into into Newark and, and what you're seeing there. Jabari, same question to you. Where are you calling from, and how's it looking there today? Sure. So I'm um, I'm actually calling from West Philly. Um, the, the pandemic has hit uh, every corner of of our area, um, and so when I look at it from both a work standpoint and also the neighborhood I live in. Uh, my boundary typically runs uh, runs from 30th Street um, as far to the city's uh, city line or township line of the county, as far south as the airport, as far north as Fairmount Park. So we have a pretty big scope in there. Um, and within that, you can kind of see the effects of the pandemic in almost every neighborhood. Um, one of the, the bigger parts of our district on its east side is University City. Um, and so we estimate that there's about 75,000 people that would normally be here that aren't because of the decision of both Drexel University of Sciences and University of Penn uh, to be doing virtual learning. So that's not only the students that haven't come back, but also faculty, administration, and professional staff that would normally be here that aren't. And that's obviously had an effect. Um, some neighborhoods look like ghost towns. Uh, they're just uh, folks that just aren't there. And uh, that's certainly come to affect a lot of the neighborhood stores in certain pockets of our uh, district places that have just been closed down um, and, and have had no consumer traffic has, has really fled some of these areas. Um, and so you kind of see it in, in every aspect of uh, life uh, in, in the neighborhoods as you go through these communities um, and you know what they're like when they tend to be lively. And it's certainly a contrast. Jabari, let me stay with you and see if you can tell us a little bit about your own background, how you came into the work you're doing, and you know, tell us a little bit about the West Philadelphia Corridor. Sure. So um, we're now five years uh, in operation. Um, I, it, this organization uh, started as a result of a strategic plan that was pretty much done uh, through one of our commercial corridor business organizations. And so the strategic plan was called Defining a Modern Business Association, a modern 21st century business association, which looked at the model of these hyper-local groups uh, that are created typically when uh, groups of businesses that are unified either by industry or by geographic scope, they come together, they pull together their financial resources in the form of membership dues and capital, um, as well as the multidisciplinary perspectives and experiences and the capabilities of all those businesses and a knowledge capital to create these nonprofit organizations that kind of look out for all businesses that are a part of that group. And so um, in West Philly, we have very fragmented organizations that uh, had pretty much the same mission, the same scope. They had the same sometimes language that they use to describe their work but they would be very fragmented in terms of them not communicating with other groups uh, that were very similar. And so when this strategic plan happened, um, and I was the chair of strategic planning at the time for one of our associations and putting this together, um, we really asked the question of, you know, why don't organizations communicate with each other? And so what we did with a little bit of implementation money that we had is we brought together the five largest business associations that were in the area 
um, to have some discussions. And, and I moderated a lot of those discussions for over the course of four or five months. Um, and so as a result of those discussions, these groups kind of came together and said, you know, we see there's value in collaboration, there's value in joint advocacy, there's value in sharing experiences and finding the best practices that are working in one neighborhood that could apply to something on another neighborhood. But we also know that the culture of our organizations is always gonna be somewhat narrow based off of what our focus is. And so what those organizations consented to do at the time is they said they wanted to create this new entity that would, uh, for lack of a better word, kind of force that partnership and force people out of their silos, um, even if it's just for a minute every now and again, uh, to look at West Philly as a whole. And so we started with those five organizations and, and today we have 14. Uh, we have 12 major commercial corridor shopping nodes that are under our administration. Um, and pretty much our scope has been, how do we figure out ways to create, connect, and advocate for resources that will help residents in, in West Philly start new businesses and open up new shops and see new products and services come to communities. And then on the second and uh, other sphere of our work, how do we help our existing businesses be able to grow, thrive, and hire by giving them the representation, the connection to um, connection access to opportunities, um, and also the right advocacy to make sure that their interests are, are protected. And that's been you know, the scope of our mission throughout uh, these five years and still um, although the pandemic has shifted our work a little bit into more stabilization and recovery um, activities, you know, that's been, you know, our journey. It's, it's such an incredibly dynamic part of Philadelphia economically, which was basically um, part of, you know, supporting the industrial sector for as long as anybody could remember. And then the last mm -hmm. 50 years, you have these very strong education and medical centers, which become the anchors. Jabari, when when you took over this work, what was what were the one or two overriding concerns that business owners or aspirant business owners had about mm -hmm. you know getting involved in 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 that kind of work and entrepreneurship mm -hmm. in West Philadelphia? Yeah, so the the biggest challenges or the biggest things that we saw of these businesses were really um, you know looking at in terms of their interests was one uh, bottom line, you know how what are the activities that are going to support businesses generating more revenue, right? From, from a business's standpoint, it's, you know, what's the value of return on time or return on resources that they're investing uh, into any conversation? And, and from our standpoint, we had to demonstrate to these businesses. Um, and it was a very, it was a very challenging task because we have such diverse neighborhoods. And so one thing that Philly is always known for is Philly is a city of neighborhoods. Um, and so we have, uh, with the scope that we have, we have some of the most affluent uh, neighborhoods in the city around University City and Southeast, uh, Southeast, Southwest Philly, uh, where, where some of the more affluent, uh, higher income residents live. And we also have some of the, the most poorest parts of the city where we have the federal promise zone that was designated by uh, President, former President Barack Obama that had 52% poverty, right? And so we had to show these communities that have businesses and residents that have different issues and different uh, diverse economic situation that participating with us is, is value to both of those sides. And that was something that we were able to do uh, very well um, with the message of bottom line, how do we help businesses generate more revenue um, and be more successful in, in terms of their profitability? Um, and then the second thing that businesses were just really concerned was um, having a voice um, in things that were happening in their community. They saw a lot of investment that was coming in. They saw new residents that were coming in. They have perceived 
uh, sometimes that in the history of our district, decisions that were made about their communities, they were not in, uh, allowed to be a part of those discussions. Um, they were always an afterthought. And so many businesses and residents that are in these communities really focused on saying, you know, they want to make sure that they're part of something that keeps them informed and also something that makes sure that they're involved in those discussions um, as they move forward. Greg, are some of these issues that Jabari is raising resonant with the kind of things that you're dealing with now in, in the, with the organization you're with or when you were with the city in New York? Uh, more so when I was with the city of New York and I, I was nodding my head in, in terms of some of the things that uh, Jabari was talking about. So at Small Business Services, um, we are a local uh, organization um, that was created uh, actually by Mayor Bloomberg to address the challenges of small businesses here in New York City. Um, so the, this, the agency is about, it's a small agency, and I say small uh, in New York standards, it's about 300 employees. Um, and we focus on um, bringing together workforce and business services along with uh, investments in commercial corridors. So a lot of what Jabari is talking about, we using federal funds actually uh, will do capacity building uh, through our neighborhood development program. So we create a lot of organizations uh, like the ones that Jabari is running uh, to uh, uh, focus on providing services for a commercial district. Uh, most people know us because we are one of the largest uh, network of business improvement districts. Um, so New York City has about 76 um, and we are the oversight agency. SBS is the oversight. I say we, I just left in July, so it's hard to take the we. I've been there for 12 years. Uh, but SBS is the oversight agency for business improvement districts, and they vary in different sizes. Uh, we have some large districts uh, with, you know, budgets of over, uh, you know, $20 million to small districts that have budgets of about $100 um, and $50,000. But the, the core of the work is to provide opportunities uh, to help small businesses in those particular area, uh, whether it's uh, providing uh, marketing assistance, uh, additional security, additional uh, uh, street furniture investments, um, you know, uh, additional sanitation services. Uh, but the goal is to to not only advocate for those businesses in that corridor, uh, but provide additional resources. And then we, what we do is we then connect all of that with. Um, you know, our workforce services. So in New York City, we the agency SBS is responsible for the Workforce One centers. Uh, so we provide, uh, you know, that connection to small business owners to help them find employees. because That's one of the challenges small businesses face is getting a workforce. And then through our business solutions uh, centers, um, so this is the NYC Business Solutions Centers. All these are, are funded through uh, federal dollars. We owe a dollars. We provide business assistance services. Uh, so everything from uh, free legal attorneys to uh, free um, help in finding capital uh, to actually, and New York might be unique in this, uh, there's an emergency response team. Uh, so our job is to actually help businesses recover from a disaster. We prepare them for disasters, which is always difficult. Um, you know, I went through Hurricane Sandy uh, which was, you know, I think New York has gone through different levels of disaster. September 11th was uh, horrific, but it was localized. It was just downtown Manhattan. Uh, 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 Hurricane Sandy uh, turned, it was a little bit different, right? Because it was uh, in five different areas of the city. Um, and so it, it stretched us, it stretched us a little bit. Uh, but COVID is not only the entire city, but it's nationwide. Um, so so there's, there's that, that sort of, um, level of disaster, like it just inundated SBS. Like we 
uh, early on in March. Actually, we saw the beginnings of uh, the challenges with small businesses actually in January in our in our Chinatowns. Um, we mm. saw a huge decrease in revenues, uh, almost 60 to 70 percent decrease in revenues uh, because people were avoiding those areas. What we did not know then, and I can say it now, is that that was the canary in the minefield, uh, in the mine, sorry, not the minefield, but in the mine, is that we should have realized that, you know, a lot of those patriots, patrons were, patrons were uh, you know, also uh, from, a, from a Asian descent, and they were connecting to their families back home through WeChat. So they knew the seriousness of this virus, and therefore they were actually self isolating immediately because they knew how serious this virus was. Uh, but we were out there thinking that, you know, just folks were just, you know, they were xenophobic. They were like, you know, just avoiding because they heard it's a virus from China. So they're going to avoid Chinese air. Right. And so middle of February, we were out telling the community based on the information we knew at the time, please go out, please continue to support these small businesses when we really should have been saying, no, <laughs> everyone stay in. Let's beef up on our testing capabilities so we could figure out how to do our trace uh, and, and, and response uh, when we actually start seeing it uh, become community spread. Um, so our programs early on to help businesses in, during that period was quickly overwhelmed. Um, you know, we had a program with about maybe $40 million in capital, and we had a demand of almost $800 million. Uh, so that shows you the scale in terms of the need of small businesses here in New York City. Um, so that's, you know, obviously we we needed and continue to need support from the federal government. Uh, it, it is very disheartening and Zach, you know, that, sorry, Zachary, I don't know if you go by Zach, but it's very disheartening when you look at, you know, a disaster response. You know, one of the things I learned from Hurricane Sandy was the, the, the sort of, you know, the when you look at the response from Hurricane Katrina, um, you know, the federal government, there was a lot of waste. So the federal government in response to Hurricane Katrina put in a lot of controls to make sure that there wouldn't be fraud and waste. And when Hurricane Sandy happened, those controls turned into a bureaucratic nightmare for small businesses. I think the lessons learned from this disaster, uh, you know, there's so many things that we could talk about, uh, but certainly, you know, the, the, the polarization in our political world, um, the fact that there's no sense of urgency from Washington about how crucial and how critical this this will impact small businesses. You know, a lot of these small businesses have been hurting since March. Um, and, and we are, and small businesses, everyone can agree, small businesses are the economic engine of the United States. It's not New York, it's not Philly, it's the United States. And if we do not move with a sense of urgency, um, you know, small businesses are concerned about rent, Small businesses are concerned about, you know, they have business in interruption insurance that they can't use. Um, they have workers that, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do with. Um, and we are have not come up with, as, as a nation, come up with a solution there. So, you know, there's definitely, you know, if you're doing this research, there's definitely uh, a, par a whole chapter on how inefficient government has been on all levels in terms of helping our small businesses.
Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about small business in the pandemic with Greg Bishop, Jabari Jones, and Zachary Cox. Zachary, let me come to you, and maybe you can fill us in a little bit on sort of the, your research trajectory, and then we'd like to meet you sort of mid-stride. I mean, what are you finding right now that we're six months into this that um, echoes a bit of what Jabari and Greg are describing in Philadelphia and in New York? Well, you know, Greg, it's it's so interesting that you mentioned 9-11, Katrina, Sandy, because in disaster, and Scott, you, you know all about this, we kind of learn from the last one, right? After 9-11, the, the United States kind of reorganized things and they brought FEMA under Homeland Security to protect from some things and that caused vulnerabilities and other things. And, you know, that, that was part of the reason that Hurricane Katrina was so bad. And then as you were talking about maybe some of the controls that were put on after mm -hmm. Katrina hurt Hurricane Sandy. Um, you know, I, I, it was interesting today. We, there, there was news that came out that any payroll protection program loan under $50,000 was going to be instantly forgiven. You just have to fill out a form and, and you're good to go. And I remember back in, in April, I had an interview, I had a few interviews. But there's one that stands out in my mind. And the gal was saying, she said, you know, I read the CARES Act and I go to three calls a day uh, trying to figure this thing out because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. And then I go to my bank and, you know, our, what, what's their role? And they seem to be holding me up. And, okay, then the bank got it, you know. And it's it's so complicated. And people were so afraid of making a mistake. And, you know, I think the, what was the average loan? $101,000. That's a lot of money for some of these small businesses. And if they make a mistake and they're terrified about, you know, getting audited on that, and then that prevents them from taking the action that maybe they need to take. Um, and it's just a confusing time and there's a lot of action happening all at once and it's unprecedented, right? And nobody knows, it's, it's, it's confusing. So that, I think, the, 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 I'm sorry. So I just as, as you're that, that CARES Act, just for people who aren't familiar with it, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act was, you know, part of what Congress did relatively early on in the pandemic to provide some some aid for individuals and for businesses and particularly this paycheck protection program that that was aimed at small business am i right greg let me get you in on this and then jabari let me come back to you on it yeah and i would say that you know uh you are absolutely right Zach. is there there is no sort of like um uh, consistent sort of knowledge from all the disasters across the country so we we just go from disaster to disaster um and well, the one thing I will say, though, and I'll give the federal government credit for this, is that, you know, unlike Hurricane Sandy, where we had to wait almost six or seven months uh, for the federal government to actually enact uh, aid to municipalities, the federal government moved really quick. But unfortunately, it moved so quick that it caused confusion. Um, and, uh, you know, the, this, this is one of those things where I don't know if you, you could have done it any better way. Uh, but the fact that they used the infrastructure of banks was pretty smart. That's the best way uh, to get money out really quickly. The problem is, is that you know it did not make it did not make a recognition a recognition that a lot of small businesses are minority owned, and a lot of and I'm talking specifically about Black and and Latino owned businesses, and they do not have banking relationships for other systemic reasons. Uh, so a lot of the smaller businesses were shut out of of that uh, that that program. The second thing, it concentrated a lot on payroll protection. So it did not take in consideration the other costs, which includes the, the fixed cost of rent. And up to this day, even though there's the, you know, the forgiveness, 
the, the sort of the elephant in the room, again, and I'm going to go back to it, is that a lot of businesses are struggling with what am I going to do with this rent? Because my landlord is not forgiven my rent. Um, it may he the, my landlord may not be asking for the rent right now, but that those dollars are are accumulating, and I'm going to have a balloon payment at some point in time. And what am what am I supposed to do there? Uh, and we have not had a, any type of conversation or any solution in terms of what to do with the rent payment or the ballooning rent payment that's coming uh, for our small businesses. And that is the other shoe that's going to drop, and I'm afraid that it's going to impact a lot of small businesses. Jabari, can you translate that um, into the West Philadelphia experience, particularly? Thank you, Greg, because I think um, you know certain assumptions are made about small business generally, but they may not take into account the uniqueness of business ecosystems like West Philadelphia, particularly with a large percentage of minority-owned businesses there, and also, as you pointed out earlier, tied to big anchor institutions that everybody sort of expect to be running like clockwork and all of a sudden they've been, the Drexel students haven't been there since March. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so similarly, I think that Greg was absolutely right when he was, if you're looking at from the government standpoint of getting dollars out quickly, the banks were a great option. Um, in our ecosystem, it turned out to be, you know, not a great option. And and really, the there uh, one the first reason that Greg touched on was um, that you have a lot of minority, um, especially black and brown companies that do not have banking relationships and are underbanked, right? And so a lot of the banks, when they came out with this program, they focused on customers only or customers first, and in many cases, that boxed out a lot of small businesses that either didn't have those banking relationships or uh, small businesses that bank with a credit union or smaller bank that wasn't offering the program. Um, the second part of the, 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 the uh, Paycheck Protection Program that affected our district is a lot of those larger banks focused on the clients with the most sophisticated bank relationships, i.e. the Shake Shacks and other major companies that keep a $10, $20 million minimum balance versus the small shop in West Philly that may keep you know, a $10,000 minimum balance. And so when you give banks the ability to determine the order of processing applications, they're gonna take care of the, the bank cu customers and the clients that have the larger balances, that have the sophisticated banking relationships and length of time relationships. And that really hurt our community uh, you know, very strongly. And I, I remember during the first you know, couple of weeks that the program was out, you know, me and my staff actually spoke with a number of financial institutions across the city and ask them to uh, open up their programs and accept applications uh, from folks that necessarily were not account holders. Um, and so we were able to get two or three uh, banking institutions to do that. Um, and that's why our numbers were slightly better than some of the other areas in the city, but still we had the same challenges that um, a lot of other communities had. And, and, and it, was a, it, was, it was unfortunately um, not uh, as well looked at. And I think the second version of the, of the CARES Act which put money in community development financial institutions, the CDFIs, uh, was a great way to leverage um, and make sure that you know minority and historically disadvantaged businesses still got access to some of that capital. And I hope that in future disasters, that note was taken, and that um, you know in the future, you know when there's there's dollars that need to get out, that that is that is a consideration because the CDFIs did an extraordinarily great job. They got the money out just as quick as the banks. They knew their customers. They deal with small businesses and minority-owned businesses on a regular basis during their regular course of business. Um, and they were able to disperse capital relatively quickly. Um, and also, I want to say that to Greg's other point, that is absolutely 100% something we need to focus on is 
Um, those programs, although they were good on paper, were about protecting employees. They were making sure that during the economic downturn, businesses could pay the employee costs. But at the end of the day, businesses incur a lot of expenses uh, that, that those dollars were not covering. Um, one of the things that we found that there were a lot of businesses that weren't on um, traditional payroll systems. They didn't pay themselves as an employee or a contractor. So they're technically not eligible to put the cost that they would take out of the business to sustain themselves in that paycheck protection loan. Um, and unfortunately, the verbiage in that that process, um, you know, really took them out. So there were a number of problems with that. And, and I hope that um, as business leaders across the country have voiced them and I've seen lots of people that have done op-eds and things like that. And hopefully it informs, you know, future um, circumstances and things like that, that we need to be a lot more intentional. Um, and our focus can't just be, let's get money out fast, but we have to make sure that it goes to all levels. Zach, Zachary, let me come to you. Um, we've heard a bit about, you know, the, the challenges and problems with the federal aid. What can you tell us a little, some of the workarounds, some of the changes that small businesses are actually creating? Literally, we've, I've heard a lot of different metaphors for this, you know, building the airplane while we're flying it. And, and I, I, do, I like that one and there's other ones, but what are you seeing that you can tell us in a bit more of a general sense in the small business sector that people are adapting literally six months into this virus to, to keep their businesses open? Well, I'm gonna use, uh, you know, the buzzword of innovation, right? There's a lot of innovation um, that, that small businesses are having to take on just to, to stay in business. And in my research, I, I look at, at how they do, I, I kind of separate that out into internal and external work. Um, and I remember I was talking to, to somebody who owns a snack food manufacturing place in Philadelphia. And he was saying, you know, he was listed as essential. And so he was allowed to bring in his employees, but he actually, because he was doing more business during the pandemic, he had to bring in a few extra employees. And he had to re redefine what his workplace looked like because the existing employees were kind of afraid of the new employees, right? They had been, the existing employees had been there for a while. They had relationships with each other. They knew that each other was going to be safe as much as safe as you can. But these new temporary employees, you know, he, he was finding a lot of conflict on his line. And so he had to institute mask wearing on, on the line. He had to introduce temperature checks. He had to re um, reimagine what his assembly line looked like so that people could be distanced uh, as far as possible. Um, and that takes a lot of work. And, and unfortunately, it sounds like he was, from my, my conversation with him, you know, fairly capable uh, of doing that. Um, but it's, it's an entirely new office setup. Um, and then, you know, people are coming out with, with new products. Um, over the over the weekend, and this is it's fresh in my mind. I was talking to somebody who owns a ballroom dance uh, studio, and you know, ballroom dance is a very difficult thing to do in COVID nineteen. You've got to be fairly close to to the other person, and so they were talking about the ways that they're changing things. Right, they've put lines down on their on their dance floor. They're making sure that people wear masks, and then they're changing the things that they they teach. So they're not teaching the dances that move around. They're offering a whole new product portfolio of the, you know, sexy Latin dances that that you can do standing still, like salsa and cha-cha and merengue and that kind of thing. And that's itself bringing more people in because now it's a cooler place to go. Um, and so they're actually uh, doing slightly better in some ways um, because they've had to innovate and change their products in order to, to meet the, the pandemic's 
demands. Zach, let me say with this for a second, because I think you're, you're pointing also to something that, that both Greg and Jabari were talking about in terms of the timeline. I mean, a business can take certain kinds of steps if they think they might be closed for a month, maybe two. And, and now we're hearing if we're six months in and we're months away from a vaccine. Um, that means I think for a lot of small businesses, they either going to have to go out of business or they have to change what they do, or they have to change some percentage of what they do in order to cope through this time to get back to what their core business was. I think your example of the ballroom, the um, dance studio is a really fascinating one, an interesting one. I'm sort of curious if you've been able to see how many businesses that were bricks and mortar have been able to successfully go up online during this time. Philadelphia has an improv theater, for example, and it's a great, business. It's a neighborhood business. It's a cool place. And they've taken the improv, which is thought to be something you go and see in person, and they've taken it up online. You know, you're, you the improv kind of got me thinking about uh, theater. And I, I was talking to somebody maybe a th a three months ago, earlier in the pandemic, and they had previously made costumes and set pieces for the, the theater. And so that line of business no longer works but their skills are still in, in need uh, for, for masks. And so they opened up or they, they started making masks. And I was reading the other day that you can open up uh, an Etsy shop for 22 cents. Um, and that, you know, I, I don't know how sustainable that is long-term, right? right? Move from, from the, the presumably lucrative enough that she made it her profession theater, set design and, and costume design into mask making and selling online, but it's what people are having to do. They're having to, they're having to make that work because there's no or few other options. Let me, um, thank you, Zach. Let me come back to Greg. Let me, you were quoted in the New York times and, and I appreciate Zach's um, giving us some of these examples of innovation at the same time. Um, you said you, you told the times back in, in May, that I don't think New York that we left will be back for some years. I don't know if we'll ever get it back. And I'm wondering, I'm hoping maybe that your thinking has changed a little bit since then, but I'm, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm curious particularly about this issue that Zach and I were just talking about because we do think about small businesses as being sort of hyper flexible in the marketplace. Yep. You know, and, and so that should, could be an advantage at this time. Am I right? So yes, I, I would say that. Um, so back then, in, in March, when I when I spoke to the Times, um, you know, the the rest of that quote was, "If we do not have an equitable recovery, right?" Um, because you know, and of course, you know, when you deal with the press, sometimes your your quote they, they take the best line, right? Um, and the reason why I say equitable recovery, um, you know, we I, I mentioned like small businesses, about 40% of small businesses fail after a normal disaster. This is not a normal disaster. But then minority and women-owned businesses, where in New York City, uh, almost 51% of our businesses are owned by a foreign-born New Yorker, that failure rate is much higher for other reasons. Like, you know, Jamari talked about access to capital, um, you know, lack of resources, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole study I, I commissioned when I was commissioner uh, for Black entrepreneurs um, in New York City, the report is on SBS website. Um, so it has to be an equitable recovery, which means we have to use all the tools that's possible to help businesses recover. Uh, so there's government, and again, I'm dismayed at sort of like the sort of you know the lack of urgency coming out of 
um, you know, Washington, and it's because of the, polar, the polarized politics. Uh, but the one thing I learned working for two administrations, Bloomberg and de Blasio, and, you know, you, sometimes people may question, was Bloomberg a Republican, independent or Democrat? It doesn't matter. Like, literally, you know, economic development, small business support is important, was important to whether you're a Republican or whether you're a Democrat. So the one thing I had hoped for was that, you know, support for our small businesses through this pandemic would be devoid of any partisan politics. Uh, and now I'm really concerned based on the fact that, you know, we are now in November and still there isn't a, a, another stimulus to help our small businesses. Uh, the, the other thing that I was mentioning, uh, I was talking about is that, you know, uh, literally in the infrastructure, you have CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions. They are the ones that have a deeper relationship with the smaller micro businesses would tend to be black and Latino owned. Um, they're the ones that are deep in the different communities that are unbanked. And they're the ones that's able to give the get the capital to our small businesses. They need support, right? They need the, the infrastructure to actually get um, to, to lend more, et cetera. But the other concern I've, I had was, you know, when you look at concentration of businesses, a lot of, for example, black owned businesses are in retail. Uh, well, you know, studies have shown that people are now so comfortable ordering online. That was the biggest challenge for me as commissioner was how do we get people out to support our neighborhood brick and mortar businesses? How do we get them from, you know, sitting on their computer and ordering online? Because when they go out, they shop, they, you know, then they dine. Uh, it's sort of like that ecosystem in terms of, uh, you know, supporting a commercial corridor. Well, guess what? Everyone now is encouraged and comfortable ordering from in, in from their homes um, to the point where consumer behavior has changed. And unfortunately, it doesn't really matter. And I think, you know, it doesn't really matter when the, the vaccine comes out. There's a whole other challenge in terms of a vaccine adoption. Uh, so I think, you know, a business owner should not sort of uh, put their hopes on a vaccine because I think you're still going to have about 50 percent of the, the country not uh, adopt to the vaccine for some time. Uh, it's about consumer behavior. And the consumer behavior is trending now to uh, how do I keep myself safe? How do I be socially distanced? How do I, you know, so you need to have an online presence. You need to really uh, adapt your business. And in some businesses here in New York City, some longstanding businesses, uh, they have decided that they're going to throw in the towel. You know, we've lost some of our major institutions. Century 21, for example, went bankrupt. Uh, you know, a lot of our local uh, diners have been um, and restaurants have been closing, but businesses have been around for 20 years. Um, so I, I still stand by New York has changed, uh, but we will come back. Uh, that I know of, right? The, the void that is created by the businesses that are failing, we will have a whole bunch of new entrepreneurs that's going to come and create new businesses that will reflect consumer be the new consumer behavior. Uh, but we are definitely going to go through a difficult time as we we do that sifting of businesses that decide to fail and then new business owners, new entrepreneurs coming in uh, to take advantage of, you know, the new either, you know, space or opportunity. You're listening to COVID calls and there's still time to get questions in for Zach Cox, Greg Bishop and Jabari Jones. We're talking about small businesses. Jabari, I want to first of all, see if you want to react to anything that Zach or Greg was just talking about. And, and I'd also like to get your sense too. Um, you know, Greg was talking about the need for continued uh, governmental support, frankly, to get through this time for lots of businesses. But again, this West Philadelphia, um, you know, business ecosystem that you're so familiar with, 
it is possible, or I'm curious to know your take on on the role that anchor institutions have at this time. Mm -hmm. Sure. So uh, let me let me react, I guess, first to uh, Zach's point, which I, I really loved, and it's something that you know has been happening in my district a lot. You have a lot of businesses that are innovating and are pivoting and are changing their products and services to match the virtual environment that we kind of find ourselves in. And so, you know, my, we've seen, you know, some really interesting businesses. Um, I have a, at least one guy was a, he did a, um, he had a DJ business and he used to do, you know, the clubs, the, the silent radio parties where everybody has the, the giant headphones. And, um, and of course with nightclubs and event venues shut down, that would be a business that would disappear theoretically. Um, and so he's been able to kind of pivot just by literally, um, he brought a pretty great outdoor sound system put on a trailer that's attached to his truck. And now he does pop up socially distant block parties and like like literally just like that. And they pay him a little bit for his time and uh, he's he's able to continue to generate revenue and be sustainable. Um, and so we see this, you know, across, you know, almost every industry we've seen people do that. We've seen a lot of our gyms and fitness centers turn to Zoom workout sessions or socially distant cycling or all these other things that, um, you know, have kind of been working uh, all these other different industries that they've kind of been pivoting to. So I think there's a level of innovation that's definitely going to need to happen. And like Greg said, with consumer uh, behavior shifting um, in the pandemic and, and people getting more comfortable with online and digital um, and people wanting to be safer, um, you know, socially distant, that is going to change how a lot of businesses do business. But I think that there's definitely a chance for people to be uh, persistent in, in their innovation and thoughtful in that and find a way to be able to come out of it. Um, to the role of anchor institutions, um, I think that it's been a, it has been very challenging, um, you know, right now in this current environment with a lot of those uh, individuals that would normally be here that are a huge part of our economy, um, not being here, you know, 75,000 people uh, that would normally be here in this district that aren't here right now. I mean, if you think of each one of those people spent a dollar that stayed in our neighborhood every day, um, imagine what the economic loss has been for the last few months. Um, and, and right now there's no, uh, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, of a definite time when they'll be back. Um, and so right now, I, I think we, and on top of that, the other thing we've noticed is the spend of anchor institutions, which we've been very strong in making sure that there is a level of local and diverse spend that comes from these, these academic institutions here to contract with local businesses that has slowed down. Um, as you've seen, these places shut down their operations and no longer in classes, so they're no longer needing, you know, cleaning. They no longer need landscaping, facilities, maintenance, professional services, things of that nature, that a lot of those contracts um, are now being cut. Um, but I think that the, the part of it that I find that there's some, um, some wiggle room in is I think it's the research capacities of local institutions and, and the Federal Reserve and something that I advocated back in April I had the honor of uh, testifying before congressional panel on uh, federal research. And I said that one of the things that makes recovery slow um, is that the, the, the research that bases Congress's decisions in terms of how they are going to put dollars out in the marketplace and what these relief acts are created is not inclusive research. You know, you have research out there that is, is creating these programs that are defining small businesses as somebody that makes $10 million or less per location. Um, and the problem with that is there is no involvement with the local chambers of commerce, the local business associations, actual black and brown small business owners aren't part of that research discussion in many times. And so 
that is something that creates these definitions. So I think one of the things that the universities can do as these anchor institutions, and I think there's no shortage of federal research grants to study the impact of the pandemic, but figuring out how you put together equitable projects that are gonna come up with recommendations that can go to Congress, that can go to chambers of commerce, that can go to advocacy organizations, et cetera, to push all levels of government, and that's not just federal, but state and city, um, to, to come up with a blueprint that's well-informed that's gonna lead to relief. Because if we don't do that, uh, we're gonna have these drawn out recoveries and the longer it takes for the economy to recover, the more minority businesses and smaller businesses aren't gonna make it. Zachary, uh, I, I mean, everything Jabari is talking about is making my head just kind of go like this. I mean, he's calling upon the universities to step up and provide the kind of analysis in the moment that can then become the basis for policymaking, not five years from now, but literally as we move through, we're still in the response and into recovery phase. How are you seeing that at, at this time, that interface between research and need? It's, it's really tough. So I'll, I'll give really big credit to, to the directors of the Disaster Research Center, Trisha Walkenworth and James Kendra, who got the, you know, the, the whole research program going, the, the, the research program that I uh, do my interviews out of, talking to small businesses, talking to everybody in the community. They started that, I think we, we did our first interview like April 3rd. Don't quote me on that, but it was, it was early in the pandemic. And so we've got, you know, we've got 250, 300 interviews that have really good data. Everything that I've talked about today, I've pulled from those interviews. So we know that we know, we know about innovation. We know about the, the challenges that small businesses are facing just from my own uh, research. Scott, you know, the difficulty of translating research, right? Translating those interviews into the product that academics always put out is, is a manuscript. And then getting people to read those manuscripts is always another layer of, of difficulty. Um, so Greg and Jabari are laughing Right. They're they're kind enough to be muted right now. But they, I mean, they're, you're really right in the sweet spot here talking, Zach, about the need for for research products in the moment. So keep going. I mean, this derail you there. But I think it's it's a, we've reached a good moment for this conversation. Absolutely. Well, I, I was going to give give you some credit. Right. Because places like this COVID calls, you get what, 300 uh, hits on your on your YouTube. You've got quite a Twitter following. This is this is the way that that it starts. Right. And, you know, Jabari, I, I hope that, you know, you're, you're, you're clearly interfacing with this community a little bit. When you go to testify in front of Congress again, you bring some of this with you um, because, you know, academics, we will push in the way that we know how to push. Um, but the way we know how to push is, is maybe a little bit too slow for, for the moment. Yeah, I, sorry, I, I just had to jump. I was, I was, I was smiling because I think there is a, um, uh, there needs to be an interpretation, right? Um, so the business community needs to understand this research. Um, and and I started off this conversation by saying that I was, you know, when we have services that help businesses prepare for disasters, uh, but one of the biggest challenge was getting business owners to actually, and and all our services uh, at at SBS was as was totally free. There was no cost to it. Matter of fact, we even had a grant where if you took a program, we would help you implement a solution because based on what we learned from Hurricane um, uh, Sandy, but literally 
business owners and especially our and, and most of our businesses in New York City have you know fewer than 10 employees. So they're very small businesses. They don't have time to actually take these programs and actually implement the solutions that 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 we offer. Um, so how do you get a business owner to actually understand like why it's important to prepare for a disaster? Similarly, our elected, our political environment, how do you get you know uh, elected officials to understand that this is important as well. I think, you know, after this disaster is over and I, you know, probably in the next year or so, you're gonna get a, a lot of analysis. But one of the things that I, I didn't mention earlier, so after 9-11, there was a whole analysis in terms of business interruption insurance and the fact that it didn't cover terrorism, right? So then Congress act and said, well, wait a minute, we need, in case we ever get a, to Zachary's point, there was a whole bunch of change what if we get another terrorist attack? Well, we need to make sure our businesses are, are, are protected. So then we created this whole fund where, you know, Congress would create a fund that would backstop business interruption insurance because we didn't want, you know, an insurance company to go um, and bankrupt based on claims, et cetera, et cetera. Well, no one thought about pandemic insurance, right? Yes. Now they're talking about pandemic insurance, but they're talking about future for uh, thinking. They're not talking about now. And of course, we went through and we saw SARS across and we saw MERS. We saw that in other parts of the country, in other parts of the world. So again, it goes back to how do you take the research that you've done, get it synthesized in a point where, a bullet points where elected officials understand how important it is for us to be prepared and then have that continuity, right? Because the politics gets involved where every elected official, they're just thinking about the next election. They're not thinking long-term. And they're not, you know, thinking about I'm going to get, you know, credit for this later on. The one, you know, in, in, in New York, you know, Michael Bloomberg spent billions and billions and billions of dollars building a third water tunnel in our city. We only had two. So therefore, we couldn't take any offline to, to actually maintain. And God forbid, if one of them failed, we would have been screwed. But that stuff is not it's not stuff that the, the electoral cares about. It's not stuff that you get credit for. Uh, but it's so important in terms of the infrastructure to make sure that we have continuity uh, in case we have a disaster. And that's the type of stuff that, it, to Zach's point, it is hard work. It's hard work to get elected officials to understand why this is, this is important. It's hard work to get business owners to take the time out to understand why this is important. Uh, so all we can do is like do these shows, uh, make sure that when we testify, we talk about these things. Um, but my fear is that you know if we don't have leadership on the national stage to really come up with a comprehensive disaster plan for the country, um, that we're going to be in this situation in the in a, in a future disaster. Greg, I, I just want to underline something you're describing there, which because this you know, biz, business continuity insurance, for example, I mean, I mean, if you take into account everything that's happened in this country in the last six months, from the pandemic through wildfires and hurricanes, and then the murder of George Floyd and the racial injustice and everything that has been exposed, I mean, it's been a complex disaster, unlike anything I've seen in, in my lifetime in this country. Yep. Yep. So discontinuity in many ways, and I'm not the only disaster researcher who make this case, we need to prepare now for discontinuity as a normal feature yep. of our economy. And so if we act surprised every time that there's you know, some kind of lack of continuity, 
well, we're just we're we're out of touch with reality. And and the reason I make this point is that I wonder, and, I, and what I'd like to hear from each of you on this, it strikes me that that we're called at this time to make another kind of argument here, and that's one about justice. It's sort of like basic fairness and justice. How many times do we have to see that it's the essential workers, that it's minority communities, and it's the small business sector that it pays the disproportionate price right. in these disasters? And then we act surprised and we turn around right now. You know, Nancy Pelosi is able to get some traction with the President of the United States when it comes to American Airlines. But when it comes to the small business sector, where's that phone call? Right. So mm -hmm. I guess I'm, I think I'm saying too many things all at once here. I don't know how to disaggregate them, but it's because that's how I see them. I think we yeah. have this big aggregated problem right now. Well, and I guess I just want to bring it back to you, Greg, and then and to each of you to get your reaction to this issue about how we, mm -hmm. I think we have to reframe this debate entirely from a justice perspective. Absolutely. And I think what you're seeing is because small businesses are, are sort of um, not necessarily, when you look at, you know, the, the, the lobbyists, right? When you look at the organization of the larger businesses, the larger businesses have resources uh, where they have individuals in the halls of Congress, where they have individuals, you know, talking to every elected official of why this industry is so important to protect. Our small businesses do not have that level of advocacy in Washington. And that is why you're seeing what you're seeing. Um, you know, there, there's obviously there's the, you know, the Chamber of Commerces, there's, there's a number of different groups uh, but in terms of, and this is the other part of uh, helping our small business owners understand, in terms of the sort of the power, right, of uh, helping small business owners understand that they have to be politically engaged, not only just running your business, but you have to be politically engaged. Uh, so, so our elected officials understand, yes, our airline industry is important, but so too is our small businesses. Uh, when we say, and I've mentioned it before, small businesses are the economic engine, in New York City, small businesses employ almost 3 million New Yorkers. Um, and that is nothing to sneeze at. Um, but you're not seeing the sense, of, like I said, the sense of urgency because of the advocacy and because of the, the lack of advocacy our small businesses have. Jabari, what's your take on this? Yeah, so I mean, I think that uh, it, this, is, this is a really good conversation too, Scott. Uh, so I think that um, the answer to the question, um, and I think all of the points that, you, that we've been made so far have been really great. But I think that the the answer to making sure that one politicians can understand and prioritize this and businesses are also focused on it. And the answer is in your chambers of commerce and your business associations. I testify before Congress. I, I have great relationships with all of our elected officials at every level. Many of the chambers of commerce and business associations have subsequent political action committees that make political contributions, right? And so the only thing that really sets us apart from a Comcast or a larger our larger company is that I can't, with the, our groups tend to be smaller and can't afford to have the access to the sponsored research that a Comcast can get done. So a Comcast can do a study and emphasize its economic impact with, do, with you know, dollars, cents, jobs, direct, indirect things. And you can go into an elected official and say, Congressperson, Senator, or whatever, you know, this is all the ways that we interfere with this region. And these are all the economic benefits we have. And we need to survive. So we need a program that bails us out or does X, Y, Z, A, B, and C. The smaller groups, even though we have, in similar in many cases, more an economic impact, especially from larger nonprofits that don't pay taxes, um, but we don't have the ability to be able to have that data in hand 
to be able to go to Congressperson XYZ and be able to show them that if you're really concerned about the economic welfare of your community, the, our small businesses have to play a big part in that. And I know that there was at least one study done in Philadelphia that I think was a, a grant funded study that was from um, a foundation to the Sustainable Business Network that showed that there were 93,000 small businesses operating in Philadelphia. And those businesses are responsible for one of every two jobs that are created in our city. Even when you have a government that has, you know, our government has a, a large number of employees, even when you have these massive universities that some of them have 20,000 and up staff uh, members and you have Comcast and GlaxoSmithKline, the small businesses in this neighborhood create one of every two jobs. Uh, but the problem is there are less studies like that and more studies that focus on the airline industry or the telecommunications industry or other industries. And so when elected officials are looking for legislation and figure out who we need to take care of, and we look through the roster of federally sponsored research, you know, our report is the minority uh, in every sense of the word uh, when it comes to drawing out that data. And so if we want to be better aligned on that, we need to have our universities, our academic institutions, and our thought leaders have discussions like these, but also make sure that in their research, they have the ability to talk to, you know, everyone across that spectrum. So no one is left out. And so that those recommendations are equitable. And until we get to that point where you have that kind of synergy and to the end where I can take a report directly off Zach's desk and go talk to my congressman the next day, um, until we have that kind of synergy, I don't think we'll have the kind of support that we need from elected officials. Just to remind everybody, you're listening to COVID calls and uh, we're almost up on time, but Jabari has just, I think, thrown down the gauntlet to the disaster research community. And my, Zach, I think this is, um, you know, I wanted to give you a chance to react to that, but I, I think there may be researchers out there listening who may already know of this kind of rapid response um, network where this kind of research that you're talking about, Jabari, there may be researchers out there looking to do this kind of work. And it needs to not just be invented in the middle of a disaster. It needs to also develop into infrastructure, like I said before, because we can't keep treating. I mean, I hope we don't face something like this again in our lifetimes, but we're going to face other things and we're going to face compound disasters. Um, absolutely. So let's just do a quick last round as we close out and, and anything you want to say. But the other question I want to leave on the table, if any of you want to pick it up, is what do you want to see from the next administration? I'm making a big assumption here. Um, but let's say there is a change in federal leadership. <laughs> what would you be looking for? And if you don't want to take that on, what would you look, be looking for in terms of new policies from the governor, from the state house, or from your from your mayor's office? So, those questions in mind, Zach. Let me give you the first word on any part of that you want to pick up. So it's you know where you, the the previous the, the comments were so good, right? And it's I, I as a disaster researcher can't speak for the whole community. I, I don't know what what everybody's doing. Um, and, and it's so hard because you're right. The, uh, the airlines can say, well, we're going to lay off 16,000 uh, airline attendants. And that's, that's a huge number, but, and, and, but from one employer, but the story that comes out of small businesses might be, you know, we're going to lay off three people today. You just multiply that several hundred thousand times. And so I, I don't know, where to go with that? I would say for the the next administration, you know, double down on what's working. We we've uh, talked here today about 
you know, it, the banks were a good way to, to get the first round of money out. But there's all these other institutions that serve people who don't who banks don't serve and make sure that they're included in the next round of payroll protection program. That's like the minimum. Right. And that would do a huge, uh, huge service to, to small businesses and, and minority owned businesses. Um, and, you know, I, I, I guess I would just finish off by saying, you know, support your, your local business. Greg, you talked about how difficult <laughs> it is to get off Amazon. Um, Amazon's great. They sell me everything I want uh, and more. And it's really hard to go down down to the, the local business and, and maybe spend more for the same kind of thing. But I would I would implore people to do so, right? Get your mask on if you have to go into that store or order online if you can't. And 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 shop there. Do because that, that dollar is so much more valuable. Jabari, you talked about how if everybody in the neighborhood spent about a, a dollar a day, that'd be seventy thousand um, dollars every day. And so you know, it's 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 small actions, but everybody can can get into them. Greg, your your last thoughts on these issues? Yeah, so I, you know, the first and thanks for thanks for having me on. I, I think you know the uh, regardless of whether um, uh, you know what administration it is, uh, the future of our economy is dependent on how we assist our small businesses, um, and and the, and that is a fact. Um, so therefore, what I'd like to see. Um, is a more comprehensive and cohesive uh, test and, and, and trace plan. Uh, the only way to instill confidence in our consumers is that they will know that if I'm exposed, I will know, and you know, uh, there's going to be some type of recourse in terms of um, you know uh, quarantine, et cetera. Um, so we need a, a better, uh, we need more testing capacity um, nationwide. Uh, you know, we need to address you know our, our banks literally. Uh, we have landlords who have mortgages to pay, um, and that goes, you know, on the commercial side and the residential side. We have a lot of resi uh, 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 individuals who are are at the brink of being evicted because they don't, they have not been able to pay their rent. Um, and the reason why they have not been able to pay their rent uh, is related to COVID, and the landlord is is waiting for that rent to pay their mortgage. So there needs to be a solution in terms of like what type of uh, relief that we're gonna get, uh, give to our landlords. Nobody wants to talk about that because we think landlords are big and bad and they just want prop, uh, profits, but that is a fundamental challenge for our small businesses and for regular community. And then I would say that, you know, we need to, like Zachary said, uh, continue to make, um, you know, uh, capital available um, for our small businesses, um, you know, whether in, in, in a, a more, defined and, and more prominent role for the SBA. The SBA has a number of resources, but I think the SBA needs to, uh, their support needs to be, uh, I mean, their capacity needs to be ramped up uh, because we are in a new uh, normal in terms of every small business in the United States of America needs assistance. And there's no way the SBA at the capacity that they're at right now can provide that assistance. Uh, so we need to see a huge investment mm -hmm. to build out the supports that the SBA will be providing for our, our small businesses. Jabari, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, mm -hmm. What you're looking for in the next administration or governor or from the mayor? Yeah, so in the next administration, I echo all those comments, but I'll say that I, I'd really like to see a more concerted effort to organize uh, the private sector and uh, public foundations, charities and foundations 
to figure out more ways that they can put relief on the top of their funding agenda. Because I don't think that it's all going to be sustainable, you know, government spending to the point that we're at now. I mean, the deficit is huge and not to go into a whole nother debate on monetary policy. But I think that the solution, uh, you know, moving forward is how do you get those larger companies that have been profitable during the pandemic? And how does the government incentivize them along with foundations and other uh, large charitable trusts to, to start putting their philanthropy dollars into business recovery? Um, and, and then I'll, I'll end on the point that I'm, I always uh, welcome the ability or welcome uh, from anyone, anyone who wants to share any research that is uh, going to help our community recover. Um, I am one of those people that does read the reports act. So, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, we always take points out of that and figure out ways that we can use that research in helping our community. Well, I want to thank Zachary Cox and Greg Bishop and Jabari Jones for, this has been a really lively Monday afternoon COVID calls <laughs> on a rainy afternoon here on the East Coast. I'm going to have to reconvene you guys because this is, the, I feel like we've just scratched the surface of this. We just started. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, thank you all definitely. so much for your time. And just a reminder to everybody, you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. And tomorrow we'll be talking to Eric Jensen and Eric Kennedy about some of the challenges of doing social science research uh, during this time of COVID-19. So please do join us for that. We'll see you at five o'clock tomorrow. Thanks again, guys, and stay healthy, everybody. All right, take care. Thanks for having me. Thank you.